What does it mean to be authentic when you're making music? We're going to talk about that and lots more on today's episode of Music Therapy. Hey everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. I'm Jessica Risker. I'm a musician based here in Chicago, Illinois, and I am also a licensed clinical professional counselor. Music Therapy is a mental health podcast for musicians and music fans. Please visit musictherapypodcast.com for previous episodes and upcoming events. And if there's one thing, just one thing you could do for the podcast, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. That helps the show a ton in getting the word out and getting us higher on the charts so that other people can find us as well. Okay, so today I am talking with a very talented Joshua Wentz. Before we turn to my conversation with Josh, I just want to share that next Wednesday, May 11th, is our next group session. That's the live taping of music therapy that happens in Cafe Mustache once a month. Uh, I will be talking with the full band, Boo Baby, Again, that's at Cafe Mustache next Wednesday, May 11th. The doors are at 8 o'clock. I hope you guys can come out. They are always a lot of fun. In addition to being a great band, uh, the members of Boo Baby are also all comedians. So I think it should be a very interesting and fun show. Joshua Wentz is a jack-of-all-trades musician from Chicago who started writing and recording music from his dorm room in 1996. Since then, he's released dozens of albums and EPs, composed music for stage and screen, and collaborated with as many people as possible on projects such as live music yoga, podcast programming, and traditional bands. His most recent LP, Lifted Into the Depths, was released on vinyl one week prior to the COVID-19 shutdown. Joshua is also very special to me because he and I have been musical partners for a long time, for many years now, and he also um, engineers the Music Therapy Podcast. So we've been working together for a long time. We had this conversation in December, um, but I wanted to share that he's got a new album coming up that will be released on May 6th. The title of it is live at Tone Deaf Records, and this was recorded on February 13th, 2022 at Tone Deaf Records in Chicago, and the live album features experimental instrumental performances by Proharchin, Sinchel, and Joshua Wentz. It's going to be available digitally from 1473 Records on Bandcamp. And just so you know, the next Bandcamp Friday is May 6, 2022. All proceeds go to the artist, so that is a great time to get on Bandcamp at 1473 Records and get this album. All right, let's turn to my conversation with Joshua Wentz. There you are. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Josh. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Good, how are you? Oh, fine. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> my pleasure. I get to hear myself talk now, and then when I edit the podcast, I'll hear it again. <laughs> yeah, Josh edits the podcast, so, you know, you can, you've definitely got the power to edit anything out that you don't... <laughs> you I could just overdub my entire thing with new stuff. That's, that great. that's true. You could play some good <laughs> tricks with that. Um, okay, well, I'm going to start out the same way I start every episode out, which is, can you please share with us what a typical week looks like for you? Sure. Um, nothing too crazy. My typical week is, uh, I have a day job at uh, a print shop and I work there from about 
5 or 6 a.m. to 2 or 3 p.m. So I get up about 4 in the morning and head over there. You're going to hear my cat. <laughs> I just heard um, <laughs> And then once I, uh, if, if I, if I have enough energy in the morning, I'll usually come down into the studio and, and like work on some mixes or something for a little bit. And then otherwise, when I get home at 2 or 3, I'll work for a few hours, have dinner. Maybe I'll do a little more or maybe I'll watch TV. And then uh, usually I'm pretty much asleep on the couch at 9.30 at night. <laughs> Unless I have a show to play or uh, some specific project I'm working on. But during the week, that's my routine. I tend to stick pretty much to that. And then on the weekends, uh, you know, recording as much as possible. Having band practice either with your project or with others. And uh, just doing as much music as possible. So, you know, you've got a, a full-time job, but it also sounds like you devote some time to music just about every single day. Definitely, yeah. It- and the job is good. The job, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty malleable. If I want to shift myself around, I can. Um, it does get pretty crazy, as you know. It can be very stressful because it's a lot of client-oriented work. But uh, I'm basically kind of an operations manager where I make sure jobs are being printed, being worked on. Um, and then I have to deal with the emails and, and clients and stuff like that as well. So if it's, if there's less email and more on the floor work, it's a better week. Have you always, you know, been able to devote so much of your week to making music in addition to working? I know you've always worked basically. Um, yeah, I'd say so for the most part. I think some jobs have been a little more intrusive than others in terms of like stealing creative energy. Um, I worked at UIC at the School of Architecture for a few years. Um, and that, that show, that, that, uh, that job really drained my, my creative energy. And so when I came home, I didn't necessarily want to work on things. So, you know, eventually I had to, had to leave that specifically for that reason. So now I try to find work where uh, it allows me to do music as much as I want without having to like cut into that time. I want to hear more about that, that it drains your, not, you're not saying your physical energy, it drains your creative energy. Yeah. Yeah. The, the job was kind of a graphic design position internally in, in, at UIC. And so I'd end up having to spend a lot of time in design software and then also dealing with, um, you know, students which can be fun but also obnoxious and then professors which can also be fun and obnoxious mm-hmm. um and so by the end of the day i've like you know spent all this you know i've either worked in a creative environment or i've had to just troubleshoot a lot of people's problems and the last thing i want to do is then sit down in front of a computer and like edit a mix or anything like that or it just didn't you know just like the kind of over overarching stress of that job made it so I didn't really feel like writing as much. I not to hammer on this, but was it that you were too stressed with dealing with people and problems when you came home, or was is there an actual, you know, finite amount of creative energy? You know, you worked all day thinking of new ideas and didn't have any to give when you came home. I can't quite tell what you're referring to. I think it was a mix of both. Um, I've definitely worked in jobs that I've liked, but felt I spend all of my creative energy at work doing design work. I worked in architecture offices and and stuff when I was in school and 
yeah, it's just a lot of mental energy that goes into your eight hours there. And then by mm -hmm. the time you get home, you just want to like listen to music or read a book or do anything other than work on something. So I think uh, for the, for my UIC job, it just happened to be a mix of having a hard time at the job, or maybe not feeling like it's the right job for me and yeah. also having to do design work at the same time. Yeah. So sounds like you have to the best one can sort of orchestrated your working life to prioritize your energy for music. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. And I do, I'm an early riser, so, you know, shifting my schedule to the early morning and then getting home and being able to work on stuff works really well for me. There's not too many, you know, jobs that you can just do that with, which, so I really feel fortunate that I have that ability. And if I need to, like, take a day off and work on something, usually that's no problem. If I can telegraph that out a few days ahead, no one seems to mind, you know, music being a part of my life at work, which is good. That's great. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's huge. So how does getting up, I mean, earlier you were saying you get up around four, maybe you'll work on music before you go to work. <laughs> it's like crazy to me. Uh, so how does that, and, and, you know, leaves you some room for music, but how does that play with performing? Hmm. Yeah, that's tricky. I, I, I'm, and I also am not a person that takes naps. So usually it's really hard for me to like stay up and do a show where we, you know, start at like 1130 or later. But, you know, you do what you got to do, I guess. Sure. <laughs> I don't need a ton of sleep. I'm not someone that needs, uh, you know, eight hours of sleep. I can do five pretty, or six and be okay for a little bit. If I do three days in a row, then I feel, I feel a little groggy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's see. Let's let's. So you had you had talked about some things that we could discuss. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I want to go into nihilism. We can go into nihilism. <laughs> it's all nihilism isn't just is just part of everything. I'm it just, just doesn't seem very Christmassy. <laughs> You're right. It's not really a Christmas vibe. You're right. <laughs> we, oh, we have a question. We have a question. How many mm. projects are you involved with? That is a good question. So obviously, I'm involved with the Jessica Risker band and also i'm i just started with my friend colin uh his band called park department um i was on and off last year in a band under moonlight um which might come back at some point this year, next year we'll see um my own work solo and then my duo with my friend Kristen brash flair which is kind of a trip hop thing um or experimental kind of improvisation electronic thing I think that covers it for now. It seems if if anyone needs something, I'm usually happy to to uh, to just throw my hat in the ring and and make something happen. <laughs> yeah, let's actually talk about. So you're also aren't you also sort of on call for a David Bowie cover band, or is that still a thing? It uh, it's unclear at this point. I heard yesterday, uh, this past Friday, I was recording some a friend of mine who plays um, mallets at the Deegan building in Raven's Widows playing his recording marimba for my Mike Oldfield project. And I heard from him, from that guy, that my friend who asked me to be in the Bowie cover band, that there's been some inner turmoil within the band uh -oh. and they might be looking for a new Bowie. Um, <laughs> and if that's the case, they might come back and talk to me about playing keyboards. Um, but at this point, the band is not a, like, not a cohesive unit. So I'm just going to stay out of it and see what happens. Okay, so if anybody <laughs> wants to be Bowie. If anyone's got awesome. a good Bowie, 
yeah. this possible opening. Okay, so there's all that, but can you tell us about, I briefly, you know, mentioned at the beginning, but tell us about some of the other music projects you've done in your career. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I started out kind of doing solo, in, mostly instrumental recording in college in my dorm room. But then through college, I was able to actually get some um, work doing soundtracks for documentaries that, the, that my college was producing. And it was one of those things where it was architecture school, they were doing architecture documentaries, and I was like, I could do music for it. And they're like, all right, I guess that's, that's done. We, we crossed that off the list. So I kind of, I kind of just forced my way into that. Uh -huh. um, and then continue, I mean, basically until you and I met, I pretty much was doing mostly solo work with some collaboration and mostly studio recording in my own studio versus having a band. I was never in a band in, in growing up or anything like that. So that was definitely a later in life uh, development. Uh -huh. But I do enjoy that. I, I really enjoy kind of performing and being, I love collaboration. So I like to work with people in all different ways. But most of the time, my previous work was, I would come up with some stuff, see if someone wanted to, you know, sing on it or play an instrument on it and kind of just invite them on. A lot of the kind of, you know, postal service-esque uh, collaboration where people would send me stuff digitally. Um, mm -hmm. And then I would, you know, mix it all together in my studio at home. But yeah, that and then through, through again, through friends of friends, I've been able to um, connect with directors here in Chicago for theater. And I've worked with a couple of theaters specifically, Boho Theater, which used to be in Rogers Park. I think they have a new home now. I can't remember where they're going to be this coming year, but uh, they, uh, I've done three or four different productions for them, mm -hmm. composing original music for, for their plays. And then also Rediscover Theater, which was a more, I don't know if you say avant-garde theater, but they did a lot of uh, unique and creative productions where, for instance, one of them, the audience was only one member, and then they would move through different rooms and they would interact with the play that way, or there was a play that they did that was uh, took place in an, an entire church building. And so there had to be music in every room and it had to fit the, the themes of the room. So kind of that more experimental sound stuff uh, I got to do with Rediscover Theater. Did uh, you also, besides doing the music, I went to that and it was really good. Um, did you also set up the sound system and everything there? Um, no, uh, I did help a little bit in certain certain instances when they're looking for a creative solution i can i can you know mm -hmm. pitch some ideas but typically with with plays there's a sound tech director okay and they do all that stuff and i'm happy to let them do it because uh there's a lot of wires and mm -hmm. plugging things in and out and making things work and i just want to show up put the music in develop the cues and then let someone else run it during the actual production yeah <laughs> Yeah, so theater and then some other stuff too, right? Yeah, yeah. I, um, a couple of years ago, I, I had connected with a um, yoga instructor, and we started developing live music yoga production that we did for a while. Uh -huh. um, and the cool thing about that was we got to the, – the city has a yoga in the park program that they do every year uh, where they have an instructor – do yoga, Pilates, Zumba in, in the Millennium Park band shell. And 
it's free to for people to show up and and participate in so uh we got selected to do that so for a summer entire summer i got to go downtown every week and play on the on the millennium park uh PA system, which was super mm-hmm. awesome, uh-huh. and uh, probably the biggest crowd I'll—I mean, maybe the biggest crowd I'll ever see, which was like you know 450 so people, all doing yoga, all kind of like <laughs> face down on the ground, but still they were listening. They had to hear it. <laughs> they were forced to be there and hear my music. But that was really cool because it was very—we had kind of a general production, but it was a lot of improvisation, and I would just have an array of kind of uh, synthesizers and drum things and just. Uh, Every week would be different, which was kind of fun. You know, one thing I'm thinking about somebody who, you know, I go on on Reddit sometimes, and uh, (laughs) there's people who are like, oh, how do I get a show, or how do I meet, you know, a bassist for this band I want to start, or, you know, how do you start to get involved in the music scene? And as I listen to the scope of, you know, what your career has been so far, you really have a wide range. You just haven't been in bands. You've done a lot of different types of things. I'm wondering what, you know, I'm hearing that many of these opportunities have grown out of relationships with people. Would you say Absolutely. that's true? Yeah, I would say almost everything I've ever done, music-wise or otherwise, has just been through showing up and connecting with people and being the kind of person that uh, is reliable, I suppose, mm-hmm. just in a general sense. People tend, if if you can rely on someone, you tend to ask them to do more stuff for you. So that's kind of how how that's worked out for me. I mean, jobs, the the current job I have, I got because my wife had worked at that company many years ago and was connected there. So when they were looking for someone, it was like, oh, well, she can vouch for me. I'll show up there. I'll do that. And, you know, it worked out great. (laughs) So, yeah, I definitely feel like my advice to anyone that's looking to whatever they're looking to do in music or art or anything is just show up, be at the place you want to be, talk to people and be open about it. I, I, I agree on Reddit. You see a lot of people that are asking how to do something. And the answer typically I would have for them is, well, what do you like? Go do it. You know, it's like I, when I first moved to Chicago, I didn't know anyone um, at all. And that was kind of by design. I moved to a place where I, I knew nobody that I had graduated with was, was moving to. So I kind of just, do my own thing and not worry about that. And within two days, I was working on a music video for the Verve Pipe, the band that did the uh, freshman song. Yeah. Um, Because one of my friends from high school, his sister was dating a director at Northwestern who was shooting the video. And so they were looking for PAs. And she's like, well, I'll I'll show up. I've never been to Evanston. I don't know. I've never worked on a film set. I'll check that out. So, you know, it's just kind of go and do something and then you meet people and then those connections, if you aren't a complete jerk, uh, tend to work out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. And you do, I mean, just knowing you personally, you do go and check things out and you develop relationships and you are also very reliable and organized. And that's, uh, something to not take for granted in the music scene because, (laughs) But that does uh, backfire on me, as you know. I I do, I've been thinking about it a lot, actually, just kind of as we've been getting back into performing and playing live again, some of the things that have always kind of been the stressors for me in in the performance world have kind of come back up. And I've tried to, I've been trying to evaluate those things and, and 
see what I can do to uh, mitigate my own bad attitude. Um, basically, I don't like I don't like when someone tells you to do something and then you go ahead and do that and then they don't fulfill their end of the bargain. Typical music thing would be like, hey, show up at 3.30 for a sound check. You're, you go on at 9.30, uh-huh. right? But then you show up at 3.30. The sound guy doesn't show up till 5. He needs to smoke a cigarette first. Uh, then, you know, they go, oh, we didn't know you had keyboards, even though you emailed them and told you had keyboards. And that stuff just starts to kind of pile up on you, yeah. uh, or specifically me. Some people just, it just like rolls off of them and it's kind of a... Uh, it is what it is scenario, uh-huh. <laughs> but I have a hard time just letting it go. Um, so I don't know how to, to let it go yet, but I, I recognize the issue. <laughs> so my reliability and my, my wish for everyone to be kind of as punctual and as like set up as I am, um, it's an expectation that I've learned you can't really uh, rely on from everyone. Hopefully, you spend time with people that you, you know, develop an understanding with. But, you know, when you go to a new venue or the, the venue has a new sound guide, you know, all bets are off. You're kind of back at square one trying to figure out what's going on there. Yeah, and it's a very loose world. Yeah, I'm not loose. loose. I'm not loose. That's one thing I'll say. I'm not <laughs> loose. <laughs> so, having also known you for many years now, I have also uh, seen several of your studio spaces. And um, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but you've gone from, you know, Chicago, small apartments, you know, how they have the tiny bedrooms you can kind of barely fit a bed, a bed in, mm-hmm. to where you are now, because you're at a point in life now where you have your own house. And I think you wanted that so that you could have a studio. Would you mind uh, giving us a, a 360? Yeah, I think I can do that. So yeah, this uh, this is my uh, kind of newest acquisition here, this Rhodes keyboard that my friend Chen sold to me very thoughtfully. I've got a drum kit here that our friend Colin, who's, uh, who's watching now, it's, it's on indefinite loan from the Colin Morris collection, which is great. <laughs> um, then I've got some other random keyboards here. Let's see, I'll turn around this way. Whoop. So... I've got kind of out in this area, I've got my kind of main open space where I can get, what, four four people pretty comfortably can yeah. fit in here to uh, to Practice. check it out. Yeah. And then, let's see. This is my main keyboard here. This uh, And I've had this since like 94, I think. It's a, my parents got it for me for Christmas one year. So this is a Christmas episode. And I've used it ever since. I've taken it with ev- with me everywhere I go, which is awesome. It's a Korg C15. Some guitars I only marginally know how to play. And then I actually, you can probably not see it too well in here, but I have a, a kind of vocal booth setup area. It's all black right now. Um, yeah. But uh, I actually have an area that's dedicated specifically to recording vocals and stuff like that. And you have an so, organ. Yeah. There's an organ in there, too. Yes, there's an organ. Again, that was something that uh, a friend of a friend was looking to sell and get it out of his space. And I was like, I'll take it. I'll do it. How many keyboards do you have, Josh? <laughs> Are you saying I have a problem? Um, no. Mm, I would say probably 16 or so. No, you have more than 16 keyboards. Not counting the doubles, though. you got to have doubles. Doubles is good. 
You definitely have more than 16 keyboards. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, four, ten, four. All right, so maybe like 18. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they all do something slightly different. So it's, you know, it's, it's good to have what you need, the right tool for the right job. Yes. And you are also really good at, you seem very interested in and are very good at learning what your machines can do. I'd say, I'd say I'm like a, a B plus student in that regard. There's a certain amount of tech geekery that I don't want to get involved in. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll learn how to use something, but I don't really necessarily dive super, super deep into everything. Mm -hmm. Usually if I get to a place where I feel comfortable with it, then I tend to kind of stop there. And then if something comes up later that I need to learn how to do it, I'll, I'll go online and watch some videos or whatever. But, you know, back when I first got, I think my first keyboard I purchased myself was a Microcorg, probably 2001-ish. And I don't think I learned how to use that thing actually until maybe like three years ago. Because YouTube didn't exist when, when we started out. So I didn't know even who to ask, you know? Right, right. <laughs> but now you can just go on and find it. If I'm ever, like, stumped on in logic or with a mini log or any sort of thing, I'll just go on YouTube and someone will answer my question. Yeah, it's amazing how much is, is possible. I mean, just when you're talking about writing people and exchanging digital files, I mean, that all happens so fast. Um, yeah. Just to be able to, to write like that. Let's... let's uh, but I want to talk about your music project. You have a lot of music projects, but you're working on one right now. Can you tell mm -hmm. us about? Uh, can you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, currently, I'm working on Volume Six of the Twelve Days of Mike Oldfield, and uh -huh. that is a project that I've done. This is the sixth year, obviously, and uh, I kind of started it because at the end of the year, it, a long time ago, I decided kind of it's nice to end the year with a creative project and just have that you know those vibes kind of happening and I used to make a winter EP so just some specific maybe th four or five tracks of wintry music whatever that happens to mean um, and then back in 2016 I was just feeling like I wanted to change that up a bit so I decided to start doing covers of my favorite musician, Mike Oldfield, mm -hmm. and uh, who everyone should know who mm -hmm. that is. But if you don't, he's the he, most famously the uh, composer of what was used as the Exorcist soundtrack back in 73-ish, I think is when that album came out. Um, but he's prolific. He's he's uh, has 26 studio albums. His most recent album came out in 2017. So he's still going. And... Uh, so he has a lot of material to choose from. Uh -huh. So I decided for the 12 days leading up to Christmas, I'll release one cover a day of a My Goldfield song. And so that's been fun. And even from the very beginning, I decided I wanted it to be as collaborative as possible. So I invite people to come and record with me or send me recordings that they do at home to add to it. It really always makes this, the the project way better. I, th I think collaboration always makes a project better because someone will do something that you can't do or would never think to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, someone that can do a vocal that you can't do or plays guitar way better. I mean, Michael Field's a guitar player first and foremost, and I can barely play the guitar. So, uh, 
it's nice to have actual guitar players on board <laughs> with with that project because then I can get some more authenticity into it. So yeah, today is we just released the th- day three of this year's twelve days of Mike Oldfield. And number four is in the can already, so that's good. But I do have to finish number five for Friday still. (laughs) (laughs) I like to make it a kind of fly by the seat of your pants. And I always say I'm going to start early, but I never start before Thanksgiving. Because it's more fun. It just makes you have to make some decisions and then execute and then go. You don't have to craft it. You don't have to sit there and, like, worry about the mix over and over again or take time off. You know, in a normal recording situation, I'll, I'll... do an initial mix and then I'll probably leave it alone for two weeks before I come back and listen to it because your ears are mush and you've heard it a million times and you you can't be very objective about it. But with this, it's just like, okay, that sounds good enough. Nothing's sticking out. Uh, Bounce it and send it to YouTube.
you ever sort of A-B'd your mixes when they're approached in that just go, go, go mode versus really taking your time with it to see if your instincts? I, if I can, if I have the time, I will do, I'll take it in the car uh -huh. and listen to it there. Um, and then I have like three different headphones I can listen to pretty easily. And then my monitor speakers here, which are basic, but they're very flat. Um, so I do try to have a good mix. And it's really interesting because I'll go back and listen to them and kind of acclimate myself with what I did right or what I did wrong. And the first ones in 2016, we had just moved into this house. So my studio was pretty much very bare bones set up. And some of them actually sound good, but some of them are need a redemption, I guess, like a mix redemption more than anything, because uh -huh. they're kind of rough in the, in the mix department. But these days, I feel like I, I know my bag of tricks well enough that I can come up with a, a competent mix fairly quickly. Of all of the music projects, the types of music projects you do, what type is your favorite? Hmm. That's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't think I have a favorite. I think it, I think it changes. It shifts. When I'm playing a lot in bands, I find myself wishing that I was doing a solo studio recording. Mm -hmm. But then if I'm sitting here by myself all the time, I'm wishing that I was, you know, playing live. So it's, it's, uh, it's maybe a little bit of a grass is always greener situation, or maybe it just needs to be a good balance all around. I think I'm predisposed to wanting to have maybe one too many things going on at once mm -hmm. um, so that I feel a little, just, just slightly overwhelmed. <laughs> I don't do, I don't have a lot of hobbies other than, you know, I think music is kind of a hobby, but also more than a hobby. If I find myself, I don't, I don't like play video games or something. I think that it, the times that I have played video games, I'm like, why am I doing this when I should be writing a song or recording something? Why should you be writing a song? It's, uh, I, I, I feel like at the end of that, at, at the end of writing a song versus the end of playing a video game, there's, there's like some, <laughs> something there. <laughs> there's, a, there's something that you can share with the world in some way. And I think that, you know, I think that the performative aspect of it is valuable to me more so than, you know, all the effort you spend to get to beat a video game. And then that's the end of that. And unless you're a professional video game player, uh, there's probably not a lot you're going to do with that afterwards. Mm, so, okay. I don't know. Okay. I, I like to, I like things to have a purpose, I guess. I do do but some you're, things. But you're a nihilist. <laughs> well, yes. Okay. So <laughs> Wait a second. Let's, let's define purpose in this instance. Um, <laughs> because, I mean, there, I think everyone can have purpose and direction and drive. I don't think that's, you know, that's just human nature. Uh, but I don't think that in the grand scheme of things, there's a difference in releasing an album and beating Horizon Zero Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it is what it is. You know, we, you do what you do. But my friend Steve, I think a couple of years ago when we were just like, you know, kind of down place, we were talking and I was saying that it's kind of, sometimes when things are really bad in the world, when things feel bad, um, you kind of wonder why, what does it matter, right? What does it matter to, to do a piece of art mm -hmm. when everything is so bad, when, when, you know, bad things are happening to, to people. Yeah. And he, he, he's an actor. He's a very talented guy, musician. Um, and he was just saying, 
all I can do is try to put some beauty into the world, you know, whatever that takes, um, so that I'm contributing something. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's, I guess that's how I feel about that. If you're going to be doing something, you might as well be doing it, you know, and trying to, trying to make something that exists beyond yourself. Okay. And it's not necessarily, that's not necessarily a nihilistic viewpoint, but I think, again, you can't deny, you know, the, her, the, the urge to create things, but you can accept that it is pointless to do so. <laughs> uh, Colin just wrote, uh, he just, just had the thought, sounds like the thought just occurred to him. She's like a therapist. Uh, okay. So, what do you know? <laughs> so, okay. So let's go to one of the, the topics that you had proposed, which is music failure parentheses, how it doesn't exist. Sure. So yeah, that definitely plays into nihilism because neither success nor failure exists as far as I see it. Uh, I think you just, you do things and they have been done. Uh, whether you feel good about it or bad about it after the fact is kind of up to you. So I, I don't, I mean, when I look at it, I don't see a real difference between evaluating something as success or failure. If I make, if I sit down and make a list of all the things that I've done over the 25 years that I've been recording music, you know, there's a lot of stuff on there that I think would be checked boxes for a lot of people, you know, like you sure. said, writing music for theater, writing music for film, having songs licensed for film or commercials, playing at awesome venues, um, going on tour, releasing a vinyl record, starting your own record label. Like, all that stuff is, like, yeah. stuff that like, people would say they want to do. Right. And, you know, I have done those things. Um, nobody, you know, it's not, there's no external real, you know, recognition for a lot of it beyond doing the job and enjoying the time you did it with the people you did it with. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's not like I'm, I've noticed that no one put any of my albums on the best of lists, you know? Um, and <laughs> so, so it's like, for me, it's like, well, I still did those things. It doesn't matter if externally they're perceived as a success or not. They are, you know, achievements that I set out to, to, to accomplish and then did so. So at the end of the day, it's like the only thing that's, that's tipping things in the scale of success or failure is how I feel about that. Uh -huh. um, and I think that a lot of people get tied up in this amalgam of being an artist, but also the reflection of art in our society is kind of based in industry, right? You have, huge name artists where there's lots of money behind them mm -hmm. and there's lots of there's lots of people that are you know banking on them to make money or you have certain artists that get written about a lot and you look up to those people either you look up to them or you kind of look up to them and also envy them a little bit mm -hmm. and you feel like maybe because you're not at that level that somehow you are failing and i think that's a terrible way to look at creative cre creative endeavors because you know what's what's that get you what does that get you it just gets you bad feelings really and i think that you know with when i started there was no soundcloud bandcamp spotify none of that stuff existed so unless you were like a a good coder you wouldn't really ever know how many people downloaded something if you put it up on your own personal website. But then, you know, now people are very obsessed with how many plays something got on their SoundCloud or, you know, 
how many how many cent fractions of a cent they get from Spotify. Yeah. And you know the feeling that you're never enough, I think, plagues a lot of a lot of artistic people. And it's not just you know music, but I think it's every, everything. I think there's there's a uh, kind of feeling that you have to have external validation in order to feel like you succeeded. And so for me, you know, I think there's definitely, I'm not going to say I wouldn't like to, you know, win a Jeff award for my music composition for theater. I think that would be really cool, but no amount of winning an award would change the kind of music I made for the project. If that makes sense. It's like, you know, that stuff, whether Pitchfork gives you an 8.3 or a 6.7 shouldn't really affect how you write music. That way you're just chasing trends. You're chasing what someone wants you to be. Right. Um, and I think that for me, being grounded in feeling like I've done things that I want to do and I'm getting to spend time in my own studio every day is all I really need. So anything else is just a bonus. But I feel like that's where that weird success and failure dichotomy kind of exists do you feel at peace with that or is there any inner conflict about that it's it's not uh it's not universal i feel like some i see like actually i was talking to someone today about how you know the end of the year is really tough i think for creatives because on top of the aforementioned best of lists right. that no one's included in um you also have this social focal point of the end of the year, right? It's time to evaluate your life. It's time to see what you accomplished. And it's time to choose what you're going to accomplish next year. So it's, it is hard not to get sucked into the undertow of that feeling and go like, mm -hmm. what did I do? I didn't do the thing I said I was going to do. Oh, I wanted to have this finished and I didn't. Or I thought I was going to say, oh, I'm going to, you know, sell a hundred records and I didn't sell more than 10 you know all those things kind of compound on you if you start thinking about it but mm -hmm. most of the time i am at peace with it because a i have too much work to do uh to worry about it you know it's like well should i worry about trying to gain more followers or should i finish this piece of music that i need to learn for the band practice that i'm going to next this weekend mm -hmm. so i, I i'd say 70 30 70 at peace 30 percent turmoil feeling that you know opportunities that you wish you had you don't have yeah yeah that feels real that feels relatable um, you just have to acknowledge you have to acknowledge it i think yeah you're you, you it it's natural to feel envious of of other people's success you know or, or or recognition it's natural to go well oh man that band that we played with uh you know, everyone was there to see them. And, you know, then the room cleared out when we started playing. You know? <laughs> that sort of thing, everyone gone through that. But, you know, you just have to acknowledge that you feel that way. And then it almost immediately starts to dissipate because you're like, yeah, no, I'm aware of my feelings. It's okay to have those feelings, but let's, let's move on. <laughs> uh, okay, well, that leads into another sort of bullet point. You, this is sort of a three-parter. You said growth slash prolificness slash self-editing, I guess. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm interested in kind of how, how everyone approaches this. Uh, I think when I first started recording, I, you know, you just want to 
to go and do it. You know, I think a lot of people, I mean, this is for me personally, but I think a lot of people go through this where it's like, you're just learning how to do something, writing, whether you're writing songs or recording. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you think, Oh, everything I'm doing is great. This is awesome. So then, you know, now it's very easy to publish every single thing you do. Yeah. And did you feel that way when you were first starting out? Like everything I do is awesome. <laughs> that is not, well, that was yeah. not my experience. No, I, my first album that I ever recorded, the very first thing I ever recorded in 1996 was a concept album based on a book series that I read. Uh-huh. And I, I, I sent it to the author. I, I burned a copy of it and I sent it to the author because uh-huh. I was like, she needs to hear this. This is great. And, you know, this is 1996 level, like MIDI, MIDI sounds on a computer. It's, uh, you know, that's how it is. She was nice enough to write me back and say she liked it. I mean, take that. It was that very flattering, I'm sure. It was. And, you know, many years later, she wrote the foreword for a book project that I did that you actually were involved in. Uh-huh. Um, because she remembered me. And that's nice. But I did have that weird, you know, whether it's Dunning-Kruger or whatever it happens to be, that false sense of confidence of like, I did this, I managed to make it happen. So it's the best I can do. It must be good. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you get into that scenario and as you grow, as you grow as an artist, you start to be more critical of your own work, I think. And I think that's a good thing, but that tends to hurt your prolificness, right? So the more that you actually think, I should edit, I should go back and listen to this, I should spend time crafting a release versus just being like, I did the song, here it is, listen to it. The more that you do that, then the less you output. So there's a balance of, you know, creating things. And you can, you know, obviously create a lot of demos that you never share with anyone, but it becomes harder to not share that stuff now that, things like SoundCloud and Bandcamp exist. Now that you can put something out there for free, well, at no cost to yourself, mm-hmm. and call it a, an album, it makes it hard not to. It's like, well, why would I keep this on my hard drive when I can just put it online and see if anyone likes it? Yeah. But maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've had everything that I've ever done, almost everything, out online at some point, and I've you know pulled it back in, like the KLF style, where they just like deleted their whole catalog back in 92 it's like you know what no one needs to hear this only the people that downloaded it back 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 when i put it up need to hear this otherwise it's gone it's it's in the archive it's in the vault but i do you know i find myself wanting to do serious projects that take time and editing and composition but then i start to feel like i'm not producing anything because it's taking so long which is kind of a tough thing like last year I put out two EPs, one in, I think, April or May, and then one in September during during the main shutdown times of COVID. Mm-hmm. And this year, I put out, I think, two two singles, two or three singles only. Yeah. Because I'm working on something, and I want it to be, I want it to be the, the right thing when I release it. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's, it's starting to stick on me. Like, I haven't put anything out. Yeah, I feel you. <laughs> yeah, uh, you've been working on something for a long time as well yeah and it does feel <coughs> also there's all these like uh oh the beatles put something out every blah 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 whatever three months right. or led zeppelin like put out albums like crazy you know crazy fast um and they're awesome so also this feels like there's 
sometimes it's like, well, how do they do that if you're not <laughs> doing that? I mean, yeah, so I think maybe some uh, Do you think, here's a question, do what? you think that if you didn't have anything else to do, that you would be as prolific as that? If you didn't have to, if you didn't have an, an, another career, or you didn't have to worry about anything like that, where you could, you know, someone was controlling, someone was setting things up for you, could, for you to go into the studio, and, you know, you had some sense of accountability for the music side of things, would you be as prolific as that? Would you be able to kind of, like, sit down and McCartney-style, like, crank <laughs> out the tracks? I'd like to think that I could be. I don't know. But I, you know, I, I just looked. I don't think Jared's watching anymore. But, yeah, I would love to get together with the other band and be working on that album, too. And Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's a good point. There's a lot of other things that you have to do, and, and certainly no one's paying us full-time to work on music. And But, you know, the other thing, too, about that is, I, I mean, I started trying to kind of, uh, I, I started, I joined this uh, album listening club like a couple months ago where they listened to the albums in this book, the thousand and one albums you must listen to before you die. And it's really interesting to kind of read the backstories of a lot of, a lot of the bands. Um, and you really start to realize that maybe it's not as, I mean, a lot of the turmoil in some of the biggest bands, as you know, come from the fact that they have to treat it like a job. Sure. Um, and they either have to tour so much that they can't spend time writing or they're being forced to go into the studio by a contract and they don't feel any any reason to do so and there's all these sort of things that either i mean some of that some of that turmoil can make an excellent piece of art mm -hmm. because having that kind of edge and having those parameters is sometimes a good thing even mm -hmm. though it feels bad at the time yeah. um, <laughs> but a lot of times it breaks bands up um and it just kind of you know things go away I feel like it's a double-edged sword. You know, it's like, oh, I have, I, I can dedicate 100% of my time to music. Well, then you have to start treating it like a job, and maybe you don't want to. Maybe it's great to have it be the thing you do that you don't have to worry about whether that's generating a paycheck. Right. Yeah, and most people aren't, aren't in a position where they can do that, which I think is, well, it doesn't really matter. I, I feel like, <laughs> I mean, is... I sort of feel like I've accepted that, but it feels like a lot of people are really fighting that they can't be full-time artists. Um, I think that's, that's natural. I think for specifically, I mean, I'm 43 years old. Uh, I'm, I felt differently about it when I was 25 years old. I I'm sure. Um, you know, I was, I, I, I've been a freelancer uh, at, for several years at a time, having no job, but saying, like, I want to dedicate my time to doing design work or whatever it happens to be. And I think there is this, the dream is to do what you want all the time and just be the one that's in control of your own fate in that regard. Yeah. But then, you know, you get over it. <laughs> I mean, I, I was actually thinking about this today. There's professional musicians that tour 200 plus days a year mm -hmm. and they do it because they love it and they get and that's how they make their money and that's how they engage with their audience and i cannot picture myself doing that mm -hmm. i couldn't i don't think i could ever do that so yeah you know if you're not willing to do that then that's not the job for you and yeah. you have to you have to kind of understand that and 
there's several there's lots of people that have that life and don't still don't make enough money because money is money you know there's only so much you can do about that so i don't know i think i think it's a young person's thing to think that you're just going to make it happen and it's going to be awesome and it's going to be exactly what you wanted but other than that i'm happy to have a steady paycheck pay my mortgage and then spend all my time in my basement studio with all my cool stuff <laughs> Before we end, let's mm -hmm. see if we can fit in one more of the bullet points, which is authenticity. Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, I guess the main, my main thought on authenticity is I don't know what it is. I have a, I have a problem with kind of, I've, I've never had a nickname. 
let's just start there, right? I call you Joshy Poo all the time. Well, fine, but that's still just, you know. That's, that's a nickname. <laughs> Fair enough. But, you know, no one's ever called me Blade. Or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like there's a, there's a situation where I, you know, often think that there's affectation to a lot of music. And I don't know if that's a, that for me, that's a hard thing to accept, specifically with regards to a persona, a stage persona or um, a vocal affectation. Yeah. And I feel like for it's, it's for the vocal affectation part, it's one of those things where it's like, can I understand that the voice is a tool, just like a guitar is a tool or a piano is a tool and you play it differently. Mm -hmm. And that can mean that you sing a certain way sometimes. You know, a lot of the, the best example is like how someone can sing with a country country music accent but speak without that accent. Um, and that's always kind of put me in a weird place where I'm like, well, that's not how you sound, but that's how you perform. And I don't know how I feel about that. But I just, I know how I feel about it, which is I'm fine with it, but I don't know how about I feel about it for myself. But not every not everybody does that. Not everyone does it. But you're allowed I mean you're everyone's allowed to do it. Yeah. It's totally fine to do it. But I think there's a if there's a reason to do it that is genuine, it 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 shows. I think some people can't help but sound how they sound when they're performing their their art or you know, but there's also people that just you know, put on a put on a character for for protection or you know, Maybe. Or it's creative. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's so many different ways to do it. But I, yeah. I always struggle. I struggle with that for my own for my own work, where I, if I ever think that I'm trying to do something, I kind of question my question my authenticity. I question whether I'm either like recording or writing something in a style that I wouldn't normally do. Um, mm-hmm if I'm doing that because I want to, or I'm doing that because I think that is going to be uh, well-received or if it's just an experiment, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a little complicated, I suppose. Um, But I think that's the thing. I think for me, that's what I am currently struggling with the most in terms of my own like solo work is kind of, can I, can I grow in a direction that would challenge me, but not, but still feel like me, you know, like if I just started, if I just started making, you know, only EDM tracks, then uh-huh. how would, why would I be doing, why would I be doing that? Am I doing it? Cause I want to, am I doing it? Cause I feel like that's what everyone's listening to. Where, where is that? Where is that? You know, where's the kernel of, genuine Josh music there, you know? I liked uh, Camila Medina's talk, not directly on this, but he was kind of saying, you know, what is it like when I write music in the morning? What is it like when I write it stone? What is it like when I write it? Yeah. If, you know, he's kind of like, let me just, and, and his was more kind of like, this is an exploration. And maybe that's right. part of it too, is you're still exploring. Yeah, and and I think I mean honestly, that's one of the things that the Mike Oldfield project helps me with, is uh, 
because of his variety and playing into that, I kind of can say like, oh, you know, there you can follow a, you know, piano ballad with a rock song and it's the same artist. The same person wrote both of those songs. They're performed completely differently. They're written at different times in the person's life, but they still are they still have the signature of the mm -hmm. artist. Um, so, and I like to, I, I hope that, you know, everything that I do has a bit of a signature to it. I think, I think that it does, but that as long as it doesn't seem stale, that's fine. Where can people listen to music? Oh, everywhere for, for the most part. Um, I'm, I'm the most Googleable Joshua Wentz. There is another <laughs> one that is an opera singer. It's not me. Um, but uh, um, you can go to joshuawentz.com. That's probably the main That's probably the main place, my own website. That makes sense. That makes sense. It's a good hub. <laughs> I think the authenticity conversation is good. I actually think that we should continue this conversation. I'm going to cut it off so that try not yeah. to keep these too long. But, uh, yeah. you know, I think, I think there's a lot of interesting thoughts. More to explore. I agree. As we were saying. I'd love to talk more about it because it would help me kind of solidify what my actual thoughts on the matter are. Thank you for being on the show tonight. My pleasure. <laughs> We've been talking to Blade. I want to thank Josh for his time today and all of his thoughts. I always love talking with Josh about music. I hope you guys are doing well. I hope to see you out at Cafe Mustache uh, next Wednesday, May 11th, for our Boo Baby group session, live taping of the show. Please visit musictherapypodcast.com for previous episodes and other upcoming events. Music Therapy is hosted by Jessica Risker, produced by Sullivan Davis of Local Universe, and engineered by Joshua Wentz in Chicago. We'll be back next week. Peace and love until I see you again. Thank you.